Good morning, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the USA. Today is the 10th of December, 2021, and this segment here will probably be the last audio lecture on aging. The, the final lecture will be in the video, which I'm probably going to do uh, this weekend. And like I said, I have new material I want to bring out, and so we're going to close off this aging um, as quickly as possible, but giving it due credit because we have spent a year on it. And I know I've done a lot of summations and a lot of synopses um, trying to organize around the end of our discussion of aging, which I'm now call, calling parenthetically the sickness unto death because I see it as a chronic illness in that there's a more or less consistent debilitation of the regulation of gene expression, um, protein synthesis, utilization, membrane lipid turnover, fatty acid metabolism, carbohydrate uh, metabolism, cellular fate, uh, tissue and organ developmental biology, and ultimately leading to multiple morbidities because of a lack of control over these varied systems. That includes, of course, uh, the immune system, the uh, nutritional aspects of living in a heterotrophic uh, existence, as well as the inclusion of potential um, pathogens, which will then induce sometimes molecular signatures into the genome via epigenetic modification and immune-based uh, direct and parenthetical communication to the genome and epigenome, resulting in long-term alterations of the immune system, sculpting that individual towards specific morbidities that will ultimately lead to that mortality. So a while back, when we first started talking about aging, we had talked about the circadian clock and clock synchronicity and how that plays a role in the neuroendocrine system. And of course, that functions as a timekeeper for the aging individual as well because of the interconnectedness uh, of the neuroimmune system with development and with repair of damage such as DNA damage repair, which we covered last time in lecture. And this all, of course, involves the entire multiplicity of biochemical pathways from primary <laughs> secondary metabolism, as well as induced modifications of gene expression and bioenergetics um, having to do with alterations and stress responses, some of which are from uh, direct pathogen invasion and the others are from just normal stress response, normally linked to reactive oxygen at one level or another. And so what I want to mention to you today is something I wanted to, to be sure was in your vocabulary when you think about aging, and that is some of these neuroendocrine hormones. Now, we talked about melatonin. Melatonin by itself, just as the organic molecule, can scavenge reactive oxygen. So it's considered a free radical scavenger. Um, its biosynthesis, interestingly, occurs in the mitochondrion. Uh, 
And it does indeed block certain forms of oxidative stress, but there are receptors for melatonin. Um, and these receptors mediate a whole species of responses that are not just redox in nature. And this has been well described over the uh, decades where melatonin has been examined. Remember that you start off for the biosynthesis with an aromatic amino acid known as tryptophan, which we do not synthesize in, uh, in humans, but which you take in as an essential in the diet. And indeed, it is the, it is the essential precursor to melatonin. So tryptophan becomes hydroxylated to hydroxy, particularly 5-hydroxytryptophan, which then can be decarboxylated. And of course, you know what that is. That's serotonin. But serotonin, which has gotten, of course, a lot of discussion here, authentic biochemistry, but of course, it's also described internationally as an important component of certain neuropsychiatric disease deficiencies, or at least its availability. And those include major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, to say just a few. But at any rate, the intermediate pathway for melatonin biosynthesis is serotonin. And it is either acetylated to N-acetylserotonin or it is methylated to form 5-methoxytryptamine. Now then those two products, first acetylated, the other methylated, then can be contrarily methylated or acetylated respectively. And either pathway will produce melatonin. Now, when you see this kind of crossover relationship where you have intermediates that are um, covalently modified with acetate and then a methyl group or a methyl group and an acetate group, that tells you that the metabolism of that particular organic molecule is probably under um, multiple pathway control because those intermediates are likewise to be shuttled into entirely different uh, purposes. And those can include their own receptors, or those can include any number of um, component intermediates and in other pathways, right? So I want you to keep that in mind, just looking at even just at its biosynthesis is very significant. Now, a little bit of a twist to that, tryptophan, again, is initially hydroxylated um, to 5-hydroxytryptophan and decarboxylated with the formation of serotonin, as I said, uh, and that is the normal biosynthetic route. However, there are slight modifications of that in humans. And um, we went into it last time, but I'm thinking that this time we're going to just leave it at that particular junction. The, the further metabolism that we talked about for um, melatonin was interesting because it led to um, a slightly different fate of some of those mono-modified serotonin derivatives. And again, I almost was going to go into it because that leads us into another subject matter, but I'm going to stop there. So I want to now summarize real quickly what melatonin's involved in now. Can we talk a little bit about biosynthesis? You know, it's from the essential amino acid, L-tryptophan, which comes from the chemic acid pathway, which is found in bacteria and plants, right? So what does melatonin do? Melatonin has an effect, first of all, on circadian rhythm. 
In fact, all of those clock genes we talked about back in the fall, early fall, like actually in the sum, way back in the summer too. Remember, those are the per one, per two genes. Uh, and also there are genes involved in the regulation of nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, biosynthesis and scavenge synthesis. Uh, one of those enzymes happened to be NAMPT. We won't get into that again in a minute. So melatonin is involved in the circadian rhythm. It's also important for energy metabolism, where it seems to have some control over um, insulin regulation, insulin growth factor, the AKT mTOR pathway, including the phosphatidylinositol-1,3-biskinase cascade system. Now, energy metabolism, circadian rhythm, the other two things I can think about, and there are more, but the other two that we talked about here in authentic biochemistry were epigenetic phenomena, and that's because melatonin plays a role in NAD metabolism. And you know that sirtuins, which are deacetylases, therefore involved in epigenetics, um, are regulated via the binding of NAD. And so sirtuins bind NAD and NAD uh, biosynthesis and salvage pathway recurring synthesis are modified by melatonin binding to its receptors. That's why we bring it back in. But we just also talked about the FOXO transcription factors. Talked a lot about those in senescence, autophagy, apoptosis, and indeed in the potentiation of uh, cell division. So that leads me to the last of the four things I want to say about melatonin, which is autophagy. And autophagy is controlled by mTOR and ATG, those two proteins. And we spent a lot of time on that. So see, there's one of those synthesis that hopefully you heard or listened to all those previous lectures. So that three or four minutes I went through was probably two hours of lecture, right? So ultimately, melatonin seems to play some global role in CNS and aging and just normal CNS functioning and aging associated with it. And that includes longevity. And with that, all the neuropathophysiological responses that we consider for uh, being um, highly associated with senescence and aging. And one of them, of course, would be Alzheimer's disease. Melatonin seems to have some role there. All right. So what else do we want to say about this uh, system? Well, Remember that uh, going about diseases, and remember one of the major diseases that we talked about is one that's acquired during living. And unfortunately, at a younger and younger age in uh, now worldwide population because of obesity is type 2 diabetes. Now, I've got a paper here published in 2020, and they're using values for the complete year 2016, the years for 17, 18, and 19 are also known, but they're not fully vetted. So we'll go with this one. Um, type 2 diabetes alone, which used to be a very rare disease back, say, 50 years ago, uh, now kills over 1.6 million people. That's what who died directly from type 2 diabetes in 2016. It's probably more like 2 million per year now. Now, what does type 2 diabetes involve? We all know this. It involves insulin resistance. 
And that means that ultimately people that have type 2 diabetes, just like type 1, do end up requiring insulin because you have insulin resistance. That means no matter how much insulin the pancreas makes, it's insufficient. So you get insulin insufficiency as a result of insulin resistance, meaning the receptor does not carry out the signaling in the receptive tissues. So also we keep in mind that obesity and type 2 diabetes are themselves just major risk factors for CVD. That means cardiovascular disease, and that includes the aspects of atherosclerosis, but also cardiac hypertrophy. And that means, yes, ischemic heart attacks and, of course, heart failure, respectively. Now, chronic, untreated, or uncontrolled type 2 diabetes will also cause blindness, peripheral neuropathy, and then liver failure and kidney failure. So it's very, very significant, and we need to know more about it. So the incidence of type 2 diabetes, again, as compared to type 1, has gone up from being less than 5% to now 90% of all diabetics. And I would guess it's even higher than that, just not reported. Currently, the treatment for type 1 diabetes, of course, is because it, it, it involves the destruction, the autoimmune destruction of beta cells in the pancreas, secretory cells, the beta cells. Uh, the most common thing for type 1 is insulin replacement. Type 2 diabetes is more nuanced. Yes, indeed, finally, insulin is often prescribed by medical doctors uh, because you have to keep blood glucose levels low in the blood and with insulin resistance, uh, insulin, extra insulin is sometimes still necessary, especially particularly for pharmacological introduction of that insulin. Um, but there are a lot of other uh, things that have been looked at, and that involved looking at intermediary metabolism, right? And so that includes glycolysis, the oxidative pentose phosphate shunt, the TCA cycle, the electron transport chain, oxidative phosphorylation, beta oxidation of fatty acids, the utilization of amino acids via transamination to either induce gluconeogenesis or to be used rather for ATP synthesis in various tissues and organ systems. And all that wraps up into a package of a pathophysiological status linked to corruptions in all of those bioenergetic pathways. Those are the other things I just mentioned there. So obviously a very important disease that is involved in just everything we've been talking about with aging, right? So you, that means we have to continue to look at it. And so one of the interventions that's been looked at because of its global involvement in those uh, major physiological systems I just mentioned is melatonin. Melatonin, of course, is secreted by the pineal gland, and it's secreted in a circadian manner. So remember what uh, melatonin, N-acetyl-5-methoxytryptamine, as I just said, and it has multiple immune system, uh, neuroendocrine, and bioenergetic uh, functions in the living system. 
And it's also been noted directly as being known as a chronobiotic. In fact, best known discussion, which I did go through, was its regulation of the circadian rhythm. And it seems to uh, exert a lot of the uh, um, effects in the circadian rhythm on two receptors. Remember, we talked about these. They were the MT1 and MT2. They act as kind of a regulatory molecule. And that means they're regulating the central and the peripheral nervous systems. And you also find melatonin receptors in the pancreas. And so that's curious, right? Why is melatonin a solid organ, which is either a, an organ involved in uh, basically endocrine activity or in secretion activity associated with digestion, such as with proteases and amylases and such. So what's it doing in the pancreas has been a question. And what, as it turns out, it seems to directly influence carbohydrate metabolism and indeed the associated insulin secretion from the beta cell. So that's significant, right? So it looks like melatonin is in harmony with insulin secretion and that th there might be regulation that yet needs to be described between the differences of uh, melatonin action and insulin action at the early stages of glucose sensing, which is at the beta cell of the pancreas, because melatonin is synthesized, and of course, as we all know, so is insulin. And it looks like melatonin, this is an animal model's first, this was studied, does seem to promote an anti-diabetic uh, formulation when used in certain animals, particularly in animals that have had pinealectomies, where you can only look for melatonin production in the pancreas, right? Obviously, these are short-lived studies. So it seems like there's an effect of melatonin in diabetes. And so then the question is, what about its antioxidant capacity? Maybe that's what it's doing, because pancreatic beta cells, of course, can be oxidatively damaged, and they do all the time. Uh, in fact, the quenching of reactive oxygen, re reactive nitrogen, uh, species is a well-known, highly equipped uh, parameter, beta cells of the pancreas. In fact, all cells of the pancreas have a very active removal of reactive oxygen and nitrogen. And we know that melatonin does have this sort of cytoprotective antioxidant effect. And indeed, it can be shown to be beneficial in animal models. What about hyperglycemia? Obviously, one of the prominent uh, serum symptoms of diabetes, in fact, both forms, um, I put that caveat in there because diabetes is really a disease of lipid metabolism. And I explained that and argued that point from a point of categor categorical logic in multiple lectures, and I'm not going to do it here. But melatonin does seem to play a role directly with glycemic activity and that not just associated with insulin secretion. So that means it's playing a role somewhere in intermediary metabolism. And it could be linked to reactive oxygen. It could be linked to how reactive oxygen controls vascular permeability and vasoconstriction. That's also been described. And finally, melatonin administration does seem to reduce outright hyperinsulinemia. Yeah.
So there, so there's another direct role on insulin, but of course, insulin is being uh, regulated by glucose transport and gluc serum glucose, as well as by fatty acid, uh, both in the serum and reception of fatty acid by receptors in the pancreas. So you have both carbohydrate metabolism and you have lipid metabolism linked to melatonin. And so when you see that it can control hyperinsulinemia, it doesn't mean it's directly just with the secretion pathway. Okay. Could still be back at the antioxidant level, for example. So those are important issues to keep in mind. So we know, so now I'm pulling back to cellular senescence. You know that this is essentially age-associated inhibition of cell division. It means a slowing down of growth and division, okay? We see cellular senescence in tissue and in whole organism aging, but we also see senescence in cancer. And just last time we talked about how the control over senescence and indeed autophagy or apoptosis leading in one of those directions, particularly in the central nervous system, can also control the pleiotropic interactions of gene suppression of the CDK enzymes in cell cycle movements, right? When I, mean, when I say movement, I mean procession uh, via those um, proteins called P16, uh, INC4A, 5A, and also the ARF or ARF protein. Remember all of that. So senescent cells are characterized, if you remember that last lecture, on getting a SASP phenotype and the, one of the major organized collected opinions of the SASP phenotype that's been well described is a, is a production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. I say it's an opinion because if you go around just saying that SASP is about the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, you're wrong. It's not all it is about. In fact, the secretary phenotype can simply be controlling reactive oxygen and controlling cell proliferation. I just went through that. And that does not necessarily involve that the senescent cell is secreting any of those pro-inflammatory cytokines. Now it can, and that is sort of the categorical imperative of senescent cells. If you go back to the origin of its first descriptions, keep in mind that that isn't the only thing that the SASP phenotype is. It also involves nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide metabolism. And we know that NAD does influence tissue aging and cancer. So that means senescence and cancer. So what's the role of NAD in this SASP, right? This is what we need to understand. So a paper that was published that I mentioned again quite a while back in lecture, I'm just reminding you here, remember, we're not analyzing anymore. We're doing synthesis and synopsis here because we're closing out the aging lectures. And remember I told you a long time ago, if not, you can go back and do a word check and you can find it one of my previous lectures. I talked about an enzyme called nicotinamide phosphoribosyl transferase or NAMPT, N-A-M-P-T. 
And I told you back then that that is actually a rate limiting enzyme for the NAD salvage pathway. And I told you that it governs at some level, the pro-inflammatory SASP independent of the senescence associated growth arrest. So you see the senescent cell is, is, is a cell that is secreting potentially pro-inflammatory cytokines, but yet another aspect of it, this is still held within the envelope of the SAS phenotype, is growth arrest. It's a different phenomena, right? Because as you know, many pro-inflammatory cytokines can act as growth factors, depending on when they bind to the receptor. Think about Tregs, for example, right? And interleukin-2. Now, NAMP2, NAMP2, is actually regulated by HMG, HMGAs. Now, those are it's a different whole thing I don't want to get into right now, but let me just let me just describe it to you in some detail. You have an NAMPT NAD signaling axis, and what it does is promote the pro-inflammatory SAS phenotype by enhancing glycolysis and mitochondrial respiration. So you get a promotion via the NAMPT of the pro-inflammatory SASP through an NAD plus mediated suppression of AMP kinase. And remember, AMP kinase suppresses P53 mediated inhibition of P38 MAP kinase. And all that works to enhance NF-kappa B activity. So basically, NAD metabolism governs, governs at least the pro-inflammatory phenotype of SAS. Now, given the tumor-promoting effect of pro-inflammatory SAS, remember I told you that it can cause senescence, but it can also override that signaling by working through what? Through the NADP oxidase pathway, inducing massive amounts of DNA damage, requiring then DNA damage repair, which can trigger one of two things. It can trigger an early cell senescence, but if the repair is not sufficiently um, uh, mediated to make sure that the DNA is solvent for a next division, and therefore the senescence occurs. At the same time, that lack of regulation allowing for multiple mutations within the DNA before the DNA is repaired, all induced by some oxidative stress, right, can lead to the disorganized replication of the cell leading to oncogenesis, okay? So that's where we're at with this. So there is some idea that NAD, because it's intimately linked in this, and with melatonin too, as I already told you, could be used with, as some kind of anti-aging agent. And that level of agency of NAD could be in the form of augmentation. And the idea is to administer pharmaceutical NAD+, plus in some kind of very uh, specific titrated way as to not corrupt 
normal metabolic regulation. So that's the argument. And you know how I feel about things like that. Once you start modifying an important intermediate, be, be it a hormone or an enzyme, like say a regulatory enzyme like mTOR or AKT or AMP kinase or game P-dependent protein kinase or diacylglycerol-dependent protein kinases, right? Um, or even just the accumulation of a molecule which is involved in multiple enzymatic activities like NAD, you run the risk of then causing a corruption of that regulation. You corrupt the regulation. You then can lead down very uh, negative potential cellular fate. Now, we talked a while back, and I'm sure you remember this. It's not been that long about how melatonin seems to play a role in this whole chronological clock, and that linked up to cell fate in the central nervous system. I think you probably remember that. And I don't really have time to go into it too much, but I want to tell you that melatonin is involved in the immune response, and it can control both a pro and anti-inflammatory mediated signaling. And it seems to be associated with one of the sirtuins which is a deacetylase, and we know this from tumor biology. So I'm going to stop there, and I'll get back to finishing off this really important aspect of intermediary metabolism, neuroendocrine hormones, and the central role of NAD. Right? And I, as I said, I'm going to do one final video lecture. All that's going to be happening in the next 48 hours. This is Dr. Dan Guerra at Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Pacific Northwest saying bye for now.